Okay, we'll learn about Calvinism. Uh, TULIP, in other words. Uh, TULIP is the, the acronym uh, that describes Calvinism. T-U-L-I-P. And we've already been looking at uh, T and U. T stands for total depravity or inability. And then uh, we learn about total depravity or inability, just to kind of give an overview of what we've been talking about so far, is that total depravity or total inability is, is very closely linked with original sin. Uh, it, it teaches that, uh, uh, that you're, you're born a sinner, uh, that you're a sinner because of what Adam did in the garden, that you're guilty of Adam's sin. Um, and really the logical conclusion to that is that babies would go to hell. Now Calvinists have found some ways around that through baby baptism. Some people like Charles Spurgeon even say that, that babies don't go to hell, which is not consistent, by the way. Uh, but, you know, the, the old saying is you're, you're a sinner. You sin because you're a sinner, not you're a sinner because you sin. Okay? Uh, but it teaches that you're, you're born with a sinful nature uh, that makes you sin. And that you're born a child of wrath. Uh, and that every, every baby when they come to this world is a sinner by constitution because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. What we learn is that children are not born sinners. There's an age of accountability, an age of knowledge, uh, that people aren't punished for other people's sins, so we're not punished for Adam and Eve's sins. Okay, uh, That we are born something called the flesh, but it's not a sinful nature. In fact, the word sinful nature is not found in the Bible at all. Uh, what we found is that it's the Greek word sarks, which is translated flesh. It's the same thing that Jesus Christ came in. I guess it's not something that's sinful in and of itself, and it doesn't make you sin. Now, it may tempt you to sin, but it's not sin in and of itself. Okay? So the flesh can tempt us to sin, and just the fact that, we, that everyone's gonna sin doesn't prove something behind them that makes them sin. And we saw that, that Lucifer uh, was the first sinner. He had nothing behind him that made him sin. Uh, but we, we also saw that Adam and Eve, there's nothing behind them according, from the, according to the Calvinist perspective that made them sin. Uh, that they just chose to sin. And we also saw that we're all born with, a, with this gift called free will from God. Okay? But God wants to use that free will rightly. But everyone will use it wrongly at some point in time. But universal rebellion proves nothing else than universal temptation and universal sinfulness. That they choose to sin. Not that they're, they're born sinners, but they choose to sin. And look at some of the proof texts that Calvinists use to prove we're born sinners. Or that we, we have to sin. Okay? And then look at you. And, and U stands for unconditional election. And this basically means, uh, you know, for lack of better words, I mean, it's oversimplifying it, but God picks and chooses who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. Okay? So ba basically, before time began, from the foundation of the world, they'll say that, that God has chosen individually each person that will be saved. But look at some of those texts that talk about predestination and, and God picking and choosing people. And we saw that God was choosing a certain kind of person, a certain group of people, not individuals. God doesn't choose individuals uh, for or not for salvation. Okay, they, He lets them choose for themselves through the gift of free will. He also draws them near by the Holy Spirit. All men are drawn near, as we'll see today, and, or, or, or an irresistible grace. We'll see that then. Uh, and also that the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
Okay? Uh, and what this really leads to is that, that God plays favorites. Uh, that certain people, no matter what they do, are destined to be damned to hell. It also leads to, to the idea that God does not want certain people to be saved. But the Bible makes it very clear that God desires for all to be saved, for none to perish, that the wicked don't die in their sins, but they turn and they live. Okay, but we saw was that God doesn't play favorites. He does want all to be saved. He has a benevolent love for all of mankind. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Uh, he's, again, he's given us a gift called free will by God. We also look at certain uh, key words like chosen and foreknowledge. So that the word chosen can mean different things. It can mean precious or, or, or something that's special to him. Or uh, someone who's fit for a certain thing. Like that scripture in Matthew which says that, uh, that many are called but few are chosen. Really, if you were to, to, to interpret that right, it could be many are called but few are fit for it. Or few are, are, are ready for it or are made for it. Okay? Uh, we looked at it like foreknowledge and what that can mean. But even, even like the, with the word chosen, like I said before, it doesn't always mean, it doesn't mean choosing certain individuals. It can be that, like in the case of Paul, he chose him to be uh, the, the preacher to the Gentiles. But Paul himself even said, I could have been disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I was not. Okay, we looked at the words like foreknowledge and what foreknowledge can, can mean. We also saw that, uh, um, that the early church history called this unconditional election, they called it heresy. And this doesn't mean that it is heresy, but it means that there's no foundation historically to believe in this. That no one believed in it until this man called Augustine came into the world. You know, and the only group to believe in it uh, that called themselves Christians in the first 300, 400 years of church were these people called the Gnostics. And these are people that if you look in the writings of, of John the Apostle, like in 1 John, he was writing against these people. He was fighting this heresy. And, and most of the early church fathers, they wouldn't call themselves fathers, men like Polycarp, Papias, Ignatius, Clement of Rome, Justin the Martyr, uh, Tertullian, Irenaeus, these people fought against this heresy. Uh, and, and the Gnostics basically taught that flesh is unto itself, it's evil. And that's basically what this will boil down to. And the Calvinists won't say that, but you, take their you make them be consistent to their teaching. That's what it will lead to. So today we're on to L. And L stands for limited atonement. And that word atonement is a, you know, one of those big theological words. But basically what it means, you take the word atone, it's two words two old, in Old English, at one. You know, it's taking uh, two people who are separated by, f for some reason, and they're bringing them back together as one. You know, that's what Christ came to do. He came to reconcile the world to the Father. And that's what the atonement is. Now, let me just tell you what, the, what limited atonement teaches. Limited atonement, you know, there's different schools of this in, in Calvinism, but basically it teaches that, that Christ didn't die for everybody. Now, they may say, well, Christ's death was sufficient for everyone, but it's not efficient for everyone, or something similar to that. But really what they're teaching is that Christ didn't die for everyone, because they believe that, that God's predestined everything, that God's already chosen who's going to be saved, because they have no ability to choose for themselves, and therefore, he's only, Christ really is only dying for certain people. Okay, and, and they'll use little catchphrases like, uh, we broke the law, he paid our fine, uh, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, uh, Jesus received our exact punishment on the cross. Okay, so if you're going to be a Calvinist, it really would be a lie to tell somebody, uh, Jesus died for your sins. Because unless you knew that person was part of the elect, one of the unconditionally elected people, people who are picked and choose by God as saved, you can't say that Jesus died for their sins. That would be a bold-faced lie, straight to their face. And so in other words, this teaches that Jesus didn't die for all of humankind, that he only died for a select group that God picked out. 
You know, so for, for these ideas like Jesus paid our fine, uh, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross, and Jesus received our exact punishment on the cross, um, you know, you would have to be true for for those th for the Calvinist concept of, of L to be right. This would have to be true, and so would this. And that's why the, the natural conclusion of total depravity from the Calvinist point of view, total inability and unconditional election is limited atonement, because not everybody's going to be saved. You know, if L, if they didn't uh, come to this conclusion of L that it's only he only died for some people, it would lead to universalism. And we know the Bible makes it very clear that not everybody will be saved. In fact, most people won't be saved. And here, here's some problems with L. Okay, uh, if if we're to to take these other things, uh, take limited atonement and their view of the atonement right, uh, we can't say that God died, Christ died for all the world. Uh, you have this thing called double jeopardy. And these are, these are just some reasons why Calvinists believe in limited atonement. Okay? This thing called double jeopardy. Double jeopardy is when one person is, is caught for, for crimes, he's punished for those crimes, another person cannot be punished for the same exact crimes. Now, it can be accessories, it can be aiding and abetting, but for the same exact crime, only one person can be punished for those crimes. So as one person convicted of killing someone by himself, Someone else can't be guilty of killing the same person by himself. You know, so if they did it together, it's a whole other story. Like I said, it could be aiding and abetting or, or uh, you know, um, accessory to the murder. But they can't be guilty of the same exact crime. So if Jesus ex uh, received our exact punishment on the cross, then we can't be punished for it any longer. Okay? So he couldn't have died for everyone then. Because if he died for everyone, then everyone would automatically go to heaven. Because if, if he received our exact punishment on the cross, okay? So otherwise, if, if, if someone was sent to hell after Jesus ex received the exact punishment on the cross for all of mankind, God would be punishing two people for the same exact crimes, okay? Therefore, if not everyone is going to be saved and God is going to pour his wrath out on some, Jesus couldn't have died for all. He only died for some. So that, that's why they, their view of the atonement and, and, their, and their first two letters of tool is what really leads to them believing in limited atonement. Okay? Um, and then there's this, our, we broke the law, Jesus paid our fine. You know, and a, a lot of people out there have been influenced by Ray Comfort. I've been influenced by Ray Comfort. I used to say this, we broke the law, Jesus paid our fine. But I just don't think it's biblical anymore. You know, I used to think it was biblical, but then I really looked and studying the atonement and what really happened on the cross and what Jesus did for mankind. I see that it's not biblical. Okay, so, so we can't say, if, if you're going to say Jesus paid our fine, you have to hold to limited atonement. Once again, if he paid the fine, we're set free. We're set free. So if he died for everybody on the cross, and Jesus paid the fine for everybody, everyone's free no matter what they do. The fine's been paid. You know, if, if you go into a courtroom today, and someone has either jail time or a fine paid, the fine gets paid, they're released. So you have to believe in limited atonement if you're going to believe that Jesus paid our fine. Okay, so it would mean, either mean universalism or limited atonement. Uh, so let's look at some scriptures that, that these people used, that the Calvinists used to support this. Turn to Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. We look at this idea uh, of the many and the all. Because what, what Calvinists will do, they'll say, well, there's lots of scriptures in the Bible that said that you know, he died for the many or that the many may be saved. And we're looking to see if, if, this, if we're, they're interpreting things um, you know, consistently. And this is really the way you should interpret things. Matthew 20, 27 says this. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
So they'll say, you know, people who believe in limited atonement will say, look, he only gave his life a ransom for many. So it's, it's not for all, it's only for many. Okay? And then they'll use, uh, starting in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28. These are all the same theme here, uh, the whole many or all thing. Okay, and it says, uh, it says in verse 28, it's Jesus talking, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the, for the many, for the remission of sins. So we have the word many there again. And then, and then in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28. And it says this, it says, uh, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. But the question becomes, do we interpret the all? Because there are lots of passages, we'll see here in a few minutes, that do say all, that he died for all. And, um, but do we interpret the all in light of the many? Or the many in light of the all? Calvinists would change the meaning of the all in, in, the, in the passages we're going to look at, uh, many instances in the Bible, because they see the word many in these verses, and maybe even some more verses. Um, but we would look at scriptures like th that say all, and we would support the all and interpret the many in light of the word all. Okay? Many, just many in my mind from these verses that we just looked at just describes the fact that only many will be saved. And that all will be saved, only many will be saved. Okay? And many could be any amount. Only many will repent and not the all. And this is what scripture says. Okay? Of course, you know, one of the main reasons Calvinists believe in limited atonement is because they believe in unconditional election, like I've already said. That God picks and chooses who will be saved and who won't. But let's look at some verses that, that go against this idea that Christ only died for many and not for all. Let's turn to the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 53 and see what that says. This is the, uh, you know, one of the messianic passages in the, in the Old Testament. And Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5 says this. Uh, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So he's saying, all we like sheep have gone astray. Now, now Calvinists will say, all we like sheep have gone astray is talking about the whole world. That's what they'll say. They won't say it's just talking about the elect. So if we're going to be consistent here, the all we like sheep have gone astray, all have turned to their own way, everyone, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of that all. The whole world. So we got to be consistent here. So that there's, there's the all. And I would interpret those many's we just read in Matthew and in Hebrews in light of this all. Let's turn to uh, John chapter 1 and verse 29. John 1 and verse 29 says this. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. John the Baptist. And said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sin of the world. So it's showing again he died for all. And then of course we have John 3.16. This is a verse you know, just about everyone in America, heathen and, and, and saint alike, know, know what this verse says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then we can turn to Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. And that says this. For we are still without strength in due time. Christ died for the ungodly. For the ungodly. That's everyone. Everyone who comes to the age of accountability 
becomes ungodly. They go their own way. They, they go astray like sheep. They follow in the footsteps of other people who have gone before them. Okay? So again, we got, we got the all, we got the world, we got the ungodly who Christ died for. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. And what I want you to see here with all these scriptures is that it's, it's just scripture upon scripture upon scripture showing that Christ died for all. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 says this, For love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer, should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. Why did he die? So they wouldn't live for themselves any longer. But they live for him who died for them and rose again. And then we have, uh, jump down to verse 18. It says this. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their transgressions, trespasses to them, so let's say transgressions, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So again, you, you see you see that Christ, uh, God is reconciling the world to himself through Christ. And then we have uh, 1 Timothy. Chapter 2, and verses 5 and 6. It says this, it says, uh, actually let's start in verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So it's, this is good and acceptable, what Paul is about to say. It says, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's, there's you for you. Uh, and, and then the unconditional election part right there. For there is one God and one meteor between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Okay, so we heard earlier, and I think it was in Matthew, or maybe it was Hebrews, that Christ gave ransom for many. But here he's saying he gave himself a ransom for all. But it's only the many who will be saved. And then we have First uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. There's a couple uh, chapters over. It says this, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. So I think right here, this verse right here, gives us the, the understanding, the, how we should interpret the all and the many that's found in Scripture. It says here, for to this end, well, let me just start in verse 9. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach. Because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, but especially of those who believe, the many. He's a savior. He gave himself for all men. He's a savior of all men. It's, it's a possibility for all men to come to Christ. But he's especially the savior of those who believe. That's the many. Okay? Uh, and if, really, if you want to know anything about the atonement, you can just read through the whole book of Hebrews. Let's turn there to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. It says this, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Everyone. Okay? And let me go down to uh, Hebrews chapter 7, and verse 27. And it says this. 
That's what we start in verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, talking about Jesus Christ, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those other high priests from the Old Testament, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Once for all when he offered up himself. And then Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. It says this, uh, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So he obtained eternal redemption for the possibility for all people. He entered once for all. And then we have a sec, uh, let's turn this to chapter 10 and verse 10. It says this, uh, By that we will, will we have been sanctified through the offering of of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Okay, so he died for all, he died once for all people. And then the second Peter. <coughs> Chapter 2 and verse 1. It's talking about false prophets, false teachers. It says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now listen to this part. Even denying the Lord who bought them and bring swift, bring on themselves swift destruction. So here we have uh, the Bible talking about very clearly that, that Christ died to buy them, to ransom them. It's the same way of saying buying them. To ransom them, even though they're going to go to hell. These people are going to go to hell. They bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow the destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Okay, and then we have uh, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. It says this. I'll just start in verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you, that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate of the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins. I'm talking about the, you know, the Christians here, for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So, you know, he's talking, you know, this, this letter that John's written, 1 John, is written to, to Christians or people who he says are Christians. And he says they, that Jesus is not the position only for our sins, but for the whole world. So, so Christ is sufficient for the whole world, okay? And he died for the whole world, that all might be saved. And then uh, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 14. And he has seen and testified the Father has sent the Son as a Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. Okay, so we, we see by all these verses that, uh, you know, the, the limited atonement idea is just dead wrong. That Christ died for all, that all might be saved. But if, if Jesus didn't, didn't pay our fine, if, he didn't, if God didn't pour his wrath on Jesus on the cross, if he didn't take our exact punishment on the cross that Jesus didn't, then what did happen at the cross? Okay? So first of all, let's, let's look at this. This idea that, that God poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross. I, I, I used to say this myself. I used to put it on gospel tracks. And, uh, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of my Calvinist friends say it. And, uh, you know, so for, let's, let's discuss. What, first of all, what is the, the wrath that God has towards human beings? It's hell. It's hell. In fact, the Bible tells us what kind of wrath he has for them. I'll just read it for you real quick. Uh, I believe this is found in First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians. It says right here, Second uh, Thessalonians, verse chapter one, verse eight, talking about Jesus. 
When, oh, let's just start in verse 7. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These people who do not know God and have not obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So the, the, the wrath that God has towards sinful human beings, those who won't repent or trust in Jesus, is hell. That's the wrath. Everlasting destruction. Everlasting fire. Lake of fire. Lake of sulfur. The worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. That's what God has. That's the wrath God has for sinners. So, the threat or punishment, the ultimate consequence for those who refuse to repent is hellfire. So, the question is, did Jesus take the wrath of God for us? Did God's wrath fall on Jesus on the cross? Well, for that to be possible, let's just give a number. Let's just say that throughout all of history, just, just get a round number, that only a million people will be saved. Now, it could be a lot higher than that. It could be smaller than that. I have no idea. But let's just say only a million people are going to be saved. So if, if Jesus only died, if we take this limited atonement idea, Jesus only died for this, just for these million people, okay? That means he had to spend a million, one million eternities in hell. That would be God's wrath poured out on Jesus for those people. He's taking the exact punishment on the cross. But did Jesus go to hell? Of course he didn't go to hell. Okay? Jesus did not have to go to hell. That's not what happened to Jesus. In fact, Jesus said to the, the thief on the cross, Today I will see you in paradise. And paradise is another way of, of saying Abraham's bosom or the upper part of Hades. Okay? The lower part of Hades is a temporary hell. Okay? But Jesus didn't suffer in Hades either. He went to paradise. Okay? Then the third day he rose from the grave, and then he ascended into heaven uh, about 40 days later after spending some time with his disciples, his apostles. The question really remains is, did God need his wrath satisfied? Uh, the answer is no. Uh, God isn't some little child up in heaven with a temper tantrum problem. God is willing to forgive people. He's willing to pardon people. willing to have mercy on people. Just like you and I can forgive, God for can forgive. And in fact, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Let's look at uh, Luke chapter 17, and we'll start in verse 3. The Bible teaches that, that God expects us to forgive. Okay. It says, uh, Take heed to yourselves, in verse 3, If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. So, uh, the Bible says that if, if someone repents, you should forgive them. Okay? And then in, uh, in Colossians chapter 3, In verse 13, it says this. Let's just start in verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Uh, so forgiveness is really act, treating the person as if they, ha they hadn't done anything wrong against you. And that's what the Bible tells us to do if we're going to... Uh, be obedient to God, is that we, sh we should uh, forgive people, just forgive them. We're to forgive as the Lord forgave. And the Lord forgives and we're to forgive, according to Colossians 3.13. Does, does that mean that, that we're to demand to, be, to have our wrath satisfied to be forgiven? That, you know, if, if someone maybe does something wrong to us, we, maybe we feel like punching them in the face, 
you know, of course, Christians shouldn't feel that way, but it felt like punching in the face, and they come up to us and say, well, I'm really sorry, can you forgive me? I said, well, go get me someone to punch in the face. I've got to punch someone in the face. You know, I, have to take my, I have to take my wrath out on somebody. No, you, you lay aside your wrath. You just forgive freely. And, and that's, that's what God expects us to do. Okay? expects us to forgive freely. Now, the God needs someone to pay our fine, as we hear a lot of times these days uh, using witnessing examples. The answer is no. Let's turn to, uh, let's look at Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. And this is the parable of the unmerciful servant. Let me just read it to you here. It says, uh, Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So here we got God, being the king, going to settle accounts with his servants. And we had begun to settle accounts. One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's the equivalent of a lot of money in our day and age. A lot of money. Now, as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children, all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. So you see, this servant, uh, contrite, broken, repentant even, and the master was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii, which is, I think, the equivalent of, of one day's uh, work back in those days. And he laid hands on that servant, took him by the throat, and said, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not. They went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved, and came and told their master all that, he, that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry, and he delivered him to the torturers, until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father also will do to each of you, from his heart, who from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So first of all, this, you know, this, is, uh, this is getting a little bit into pee here, but this condition is to being forgiven. And if you, you backslide from those conditions... Uh, forgiving people, just as God forgave you, then God relinquishes your pardon. He takes back your pardon, okay, or your or the mercy He offered you, okay. Uh, but what we see here is that this this you know, this one servant was offered mercy, but he didn't offer mercy to someone else, and God took it back because he didn't offer mercy to his fellow servant. So Jesus is talking about forgiveness in this fashion. He begins uh, a parable. He says the kingdom of heaven is like this parable. God is willing and able to forgive all those who cry out to him in humility and brokenness and repentance. Notice that the king in the situation didn't require someone to come in and pay this man's debt. I mean, if, if we're really going to do this thing where we broke the law, Jesus paid our fine, then really someone should come in and pay our fine. Someone should have came in and paid this man's fine. They should have came in and paid his, uh, his, his 1,000 talents or whatever it was. But the king was, wasn't uh, asking for that. He was willing to let him go free. He was willing to pardon him. And then what happened when he continued to witness after his pardon? He, his, his pardon was taken back. The king threw him in jail anyway. And it really does sound like, as I said, that someone lost their salvation here. 
But, you know, so if God's wrath wasn't satisfied in the cross, he doesn't need to find paid. You know, if those things aren't true, then, then how does this whole thing work? How does this whole atonement idea work? Well, God simply forgives. He pardons. He says we set aside his wrath and justice towards that person. He treats Christians as if they had never sinned. He offers us something called grace, what they don't deserve. And that's why grace is grace. It's something we don't deserve, something we can't earn, uh, something that only God can offer to us. Okay? But even though God stands ready to forgive and pardon anyone and everyone, there are some conditions he has set in order for someone to be pardoned or forgiven. These are requirements set by God himself because he's all-wise and all-loving. The first requirement for someone to be saved, for someone to be pardoned, someone to be forgiven or, or, or given mercy to, is that a sinless, perfect person must shed their blood. The problem is that the only person who ever met these requirements, or ever will meet these requirements, is Jesus Christ. So every person at some point in time will eventually sin when it comes to the age of accountability. The shadow of this is seen all throughout the Old Testament. God commands his people in the Old Testament, the Jews, to offer a young bull or a goat or a ram that is without blemish. Now animals are they're amoral. They can't sin. They're, they can't do immoral or moral things. They're not made in God's image. They're not, they're not, they don't have that kind of understanding or knowledge. They don't have a conscience. Okay, But they were blameless. They were without blemish. And this is helping the Israelites to see what is going to come in Jesus. Just as animals are perfect morally, since they aren't moral beings and therefore cannot sin, Jesus is a moral being and never sinned. Both are therefore perfect sacrifice. But the Bible says in Hebrews that the, the, the shedding of animal blood could not take away sins. Okay? But God's law required the shedding of blood for forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9, in verse 22, says this. And according to the law... Almost all things are purified or cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. So God requires the shedding of a sinless person's blood. Now I want you to know that nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus had to be tortured and whipped for him to be qualified to be our Savior. The Bible says all that was required was the shedding of blood. The Bible does say that Jesus will go some pretty, uh, pretty bad things. So, I mean, really the only reason why he had to go through this thing was to fulfill prophecy. Okay? Uh, but in the Old Testament, if you look back, you know, the things that are a shadow of Christ to come, um, that, you know, you'll see the, the Israelites beating the, the, the ram or the goat or the sacrifice. You'll see them beating and bruising them put, you know, and, and torturing them. It didn't happen that way because God didn't require it. And therefore, God didn't require Jesus to go through that either. Okay? Uh, so God didn't require the, the Old Testament sacrifices, the shadow of Jesus, or Jesus to go through those things. In fact, uh, listen to what Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 says. This is him, Jesus, this is Jesus, uh, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Have you ever noticed that by, by looking at the preaching of the apostles in the, Old in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, and, and then even in 1 Thessalonians, that they blamed the people for crucifying Jesus? They didn't say God did it, but that evil people, lawless men, did it. But it does say that Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God to come to this world, 
and to, to live and to live holy, and that he allowed lawless men to do these things to him. I mean, we read all throughout the, the Gospel of John, you know, a lot of times God stopped it. Jesus would almost like disappear all of a sudden. He slipped through the, cat, the crowd untouched, this crowd that wanted to stone him to death. And that was God saying it's not the right time. When the right time had come, God released his protection from Jesus, and he allowed Jesus these things to happen to him. So the Bible doesn't say that God did these things to Jesus, that God unleashes wrath upon Jesus, or God unleashes justice upon Jesus for us. Okay? Let me just look at a couple other verses. Uh, we just looked at Acts 2.23. Let's look at Acts 2.36. And you'll see for yourself, in, in the own preaching of the apostles, or the disciples, that, that they blamed the people. They didn't say that God killed them, but that the people killed him. Okay? Acts chapter 2. And verse 36 says this, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So it's not saying that, that God crucified him or God unleashed his wrath on him. The, the, the evil people crucified him. If you look in the Gospel of John, when, when Pilate is saying, Who do you want me to release? Uh, the, this guy Jesus or Barabbas? They say, Barabbas, Barabbas. And they say, well, what, what do you want me to do Jesus? They say, well, crucify him, crucify him. And Paul says, listen, they said, man, I, I washed my hands of his blood. And they say, well, his blood be upon us and our children. So they were saying, we're the ones doing this. And, but the, you know, that doesn't confirm it. These, these scriptures here in Acts confirm it, that the Peter, under the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, preaching the gospel, is preaching and saying that these people killed him. Then we look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 10 says this. Let's just uh, start in verse 9. Or verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged by a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all, and to all the people of Israel, about the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. So, you know, he... he Peter gives God credit for raising, for raising Christ from the dead, but he doesn't give him credit for crucifying Jesus. It seems like if, if Peter's going to be consistent here, he should have said, whom God crucified, whom God raised from the dead, if Calvinism is right, if this whole thing that God unleashed his wrath upon Jesus on the cross, that, that God, you know, Jesus paid our fine, if all those things are right, that's what it should say. Now let's turn to 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 2. First uh, Thessalonians chapter two and verse fourteen it says, "For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea and Christ Jesus. For you also suffer the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans." Okay, so he's talking to Gentiles here. He's saying that the Gentiles are suffering things from their countrymen, just as the, the Christians in Judea suffered from their countrymen in, in Judea. And it says the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they do not please God, and are contrary to all men. So again, we hear, have here saying that, that this is Paul now, it was, it was Peter before, Paul now saying that Jesus was killed by the Judeans. Of course, now, Jesus laid his life down. He could have destroyed these people, he could have called on legions of angels, uh, he, could have called on, he could have made someone else take his place, but he laid his life down, and God allowed him to lay his life down. <clears throat> so, God allowed it, and that's how God took part in it.
But God didn't, God didn't unleash his wrath on him. God didn't punish him for us. God could have stopped it. But it pleased him to allow his son to shed his blood so the sinners could be saved and reconciled to God. So let's, you know, I can hear some Calvinists screaming Isaiah 53. So let's, let's just look at Isaiah 53 real quick. This is really the only verses in the Bible that even hint at the fact that, you know, that God unleashes wrath upon Jesus on the cross. And you'll see for yourself that it's, that's not true. On right, verse 4 it says, uh, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now notice this, this is the people talking here. It says, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And really, that should say smitten of God. And, you know, and I think Young's literal says smitten of God. And um, the Septuagint version in English says smitten of God as well. So smitten of God. But it's not a direct smiting of God. And, and it says that we esteemed him smitten of God. But the Bible says that, that you know, when we saw him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. And that his face would be so... Um, uh, distorted from his beating, that people couldn't even recognize him as a human being. So, I mean, if, if you saw someone like that, you think, man, he's smitten of God. That's, that's basically what I think they're saying here. And then down in verse 10, it says this. It says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, or, or sin offering, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So it pleased the Lord to bruise him. So the question is, did the Lord directly bruise him? Did the Lord directly smite him? Well, by looking at these other verses in Acts and the First Thessalonians, we can see that it wasn't the Lord directly bruising him, directly smiting him. It was the Lord allowing these lawless men, who, who their father's a devil, and the devil hates Jesus. They, he allowed these lawless men to do these things to Jesus. God didn't require Jesus to be beaten uh, almost to a pulp. He didn't require him to, be, to die on a cross. Um, he just required him to shed his blood on a cross, to, sh to really give his life. Is what, what shedding is. Because in the, in, the, in the blood is, the, is, the, is life and death. Okay? Uh, so so Jesus did, God didn't mean Jesus to do this. But, but he allowed him to go through these things. And when, and when he saw... When he saw what Jesus did on the cross, he was willing to accept what Jesus did on the cross as a substitute for lost sinners being punished for their sin. So, so Jesus didn't take an exact punishment. God's wrath wasn't unleashed on him. God saw Jesus' obedience even unto death, even unto the shedding of blood, even to the point of laying his whole life down on the cross and being beaten by lawless men. And God saw that sacrifice of his son. And he's willing to allow that to be a substitute for lost sinners being punished for their sin in hell for all of eternity. So why did, the question becomes, why did God require bloodshed? So let's look at Romans chapter 3. And I think we can get some insight into this. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth the propitiation by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he does it to demonstrate his righteousness. He does it to, so that he can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, of course, God is holy. His law is holy. His law is important. And if his law is important and he is holy, God has to show how important his laws are. How, 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 how uh, real sin is. How real the punishment people deserve for their sin. So he, he was willing to allow his son to be punished on the cross to show how righteous he is. To show how just he is. And, and his son was made a propitiation for his sins. It makes sense that even though God wants to freely forgive and freely pardon, that he can't just give it to anyone and everyone without showing how serious the issue of sin is. I mean, could you imagine what would happen if the President of the United States just started pardoning the worst of criminals? Lawlessness would abound. You know, God does desire to pardon and to give mercy and grace, but he can't just pardon anyone for any reason. Um, so, it, but if, if you use an example of, of what happened in the United States, if presidents just started pardoning everybody, the worst of criminals, because he wanted to be gracious and merciful towards them, if they were repentant and they were broken and contrite, uh, people would just start committing the, the most grievous sins. Because they would expect, well, I can repent later and uh, I, I can just be forgiven. You know, this, this president who's into pardoning people can just pardon me. It'll be no big deal. But if that were to happen, lawlessness would abound. People would just commit crimes left and right, and they would just say, well, I'll repent later. The point is that God required bloodshed of a perfect, sinless person. And Jesus met that requirement. But there, there are other requirements for people to be saved as well. There are other conditions. Jesus met the condition that we couldn't meet. But there's conditions for us to meet. The first condition is repentance, or totally forsaking their life of sin. And friends, this doesn't mean that you're sorry. It doesn't just mean you're sorry. It means that you want to completely get sin out of your life. You want to forsake it altogether. You know, someone can say they're sorry and they go right back to it. But there's two different kinds of sorries. There's godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, and worldly sorrow, which leads to death. Repentance means you've changed your mind about sin, uh, that even though you once loved it and thought it was okay, and you now hate it and want nothing to do with it. It means you do everything you can to stop sinning. And this is what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if your hand causes you sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better to go to heaven with, with one hand than go to hell with both your hands. So the same thing about the eyes. So Jesus is basically saying, do whatever you can to get all the sin out of your life that you possibly can. Okay? It also means, you know, the other condition, the second condition, that you must put your faith in Jesus. Without this, uh, what he did on the cross doesn't apply to our lives. You know, without this, your repentance is just trying to work your way to heaven. Your penance doesn't, doesn't earn you salvation, okay? Penance is one of the conditions of salvation. And grace, or Jesus shed blood, is, is the grounds for you being saved. Okay, but you, can be, you have to repent of your sin. You have to put your faith in Jesus. It's putting your faith in Jesus that applies what he did on the cross to your life. So without these two things, repentance and faith, Jesus' blood does not apply to us. Uh, his blood will not wash away our sins. And each person who repents and trusts in Jesus... Uh, you know, apart from those two conditions, they're expected to persevere until the end. If they're going to be finally saved. You know, so you get initial salvation on, on initial repentance and faith, but you're expected to continue in repentance, to continue in faith until the end of your days. The Bible says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. So, the option every human being has is the repenting of their sins, trusting in Jesus' atonement on the cross, and enduring to the end, or hellfire. In other words, you get what you deserve, justice, judgment, hell, and wrath, 
or you get what you don't deserve. Mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Either God can treat you as, as, as you really have been, a sinner, an evil, wicked person, or God can treat you as if you had never sinned. He can treat you as if you don't deserve, in a way you don't deserve, as if you had never sinned for Christ's behalf. So what Jesus accomplished on the cross was the possibility of everyone and anyone to be saved. The only ones who will be saved are those who meet the conditions. Sinners are separated from God because He's holy and they are sinful. But Christ came to, to wash away our sins, to cleanse our conscience, to cleanse us from our sin, to purify us so we can have a reconciled relationship to Jesus Christ. And that's really what the most important thing we get here is reconciliation. You know, we're given the ministry of reconciliation as ambassadors of Christ. Okay? So reconciling two people is bringing two people together who are once apart. And the Bible doesn't say that, that, that God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world as if he needed some wrath satisfied, uh, he needed to have a, a, a fine paid. He said he was reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ. So the world, the, you know, the sinners need to be moved. God, doesn't need, God stands ready to forgive and give mercy and pardon. It's the sinner who needs to be moved. The sinner who needs to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And so that Christ's shed blood can apply to his account. But this whole thing of, of Christ only died for some, I hope you can see that, that the many should be interpreted in the light of the all. You know, the Bible says that Christ died for all, that he loved all, that he desires for none to perish. Desires that they, that they turn and live. It's not the wicked perish, but they turn and they live. Okay, so it's not limited atonement. It's really an unlimited atonement or, or an infinite atonement. That, you know, it doesn't matter how many people ever will live, how many people have lived in the past. Christ's death on the cross, what he accomplished on the cross, is sufficient for all of mankind, and all have the ability to come. They're not enabled. They have the ability to come because they're being drawn there by the Holy Spirit and because the, the Holy Spirit is convicting the, the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment because God has given all men the gift of free will. He commands them to choose. So, if really, if, if Calvinists are going to be consistent, when they go out and witness or share the gospel, they should say, well, well, I don't know if Christ died for you or not, but if he did, he'll reveal it to you and then he'll pick you. And then you'll see that it applies to you. But that's not really the way it works. Okay? Christ did die for all. And that's all there is to it. So we, we need to see this and understand this, that Christ really did die for all. If you have any questions, you can always, you can always email me at, uh, at Kerrigan, K-E-R-R-I-G-A-N, at pinpointevangelism.com. Uh, thanks for listening, thanks for watching, and hopefully you can understand why you know, limited atonement is unbiblical.